the Sonoran and the Chihuahuan deserts are the greatest natural barriers in the Western Hemisphere. If you build a road the entire length of it, you first have to build 50 construction roads to get to the border. And then you have obviated half of the border because you've made it easier for people to cross half the desert. So I would actually argue that the wall is responsible in large part for a lot of the uh, extra legal migration we've seen in the last five years. Hey everyone, welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I have a very special guest today, Peter Zion. Peter is not only one of my favorite authors, but I am ad- I'm addicted to watching his presentations on YouTube, where he covers an expansive view of macroeconomics, geopolitical events, and makes some prescient predictions about the future. He has a new book out, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, that I have read and loved and would recommend to you. And in this conversation, we talk about some of his predictions for the future of China, the USA, Europe, and Russia, and a whole lot more. Here is my conversation with Peter Zion. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Peter, thanks for coming on the show. I'm really excited to be talking with you. It's great to be here. So I, I want to try as quickly as we can to summarize um, your view, and it is a macro geopolitical view. So there's a lot of, of pieces to unpack here. Uh, but, but for folks that have not read any of your books before, seen some of your past presentations, I would basically point to you know these pillars that you see driving a lot of the macro picture, which is uh, changing demographies in different countries, control of the seas and safe passage across the oceans, uh, changing finance and, and capital structures as uh, associated with those demographics, and then just the plain old geographical constraints that countries have been facing, you know, through time immemorial. We've we've lived through the last couple of decades where there's been a lot of, uh, I guess, the opposite of volatility, and we are entering as indicated by the cover of your book here, a period where that volatility is going to be skyrocketing. So with that as a jumping off point, can you give people a little bit more of the picture? Sure. So everything that I deal with is the two trends of deglobalization and depopulation. So first, globalization and how it's ending. Uh, the system we have was established by the Americans at the end of World War II. We didn't have a free trade system before that. So if you weren't an empire, you were kind of, well, you're typically a colony. With World War II, that system ended, and the Americans patrolled the ocean so that anyone could participate in any supply chain and access any market and resource and work with any partner. And for the first time, we got true civilian shipping, and that has generated the world that we know. That's international oil trade, that's international manufacturers, that's the European Union, that's the rise of China. All of that came from the American policy during the Cold War. Uh, The whole idea was we will allow this to happen, and we will protect you if in exchange you side with this against the Soviets. Well, Cold War ended in 92, and we've been edging ever further away from that system. And in seven straight presidential elections, the person who didn't like globalization is the one who won. That includes Biden. Uh, So we are well past the point of no return there. And now we get to see the system break back apart. And that'll be messy by any definition. While that was going on, it also changed the way we live. And not just because things were getting better and safer. 
but the technologies of industrialization now could be applied everywhere in the world, including to the former colonies. And so from 1945 until 1992, that was primarily the Western world and their affiliates, but after 1992 it expanded to the entirety of the world. Uh, so the Chinese joined when Nixon uh, went to China, uh, even up to the Russians joining in 1995. Uh, when you industrialize, you also urbanize. And when you urbanize, you have fewer kids. And after generation, two and a half generations of that, most of the advanced world, including places in the advanced developing world like Korea and China, have now aged well past the point of no return. And for all of those countries, this, this century may well be their last because they don't have populations at replacement levels anymore. Now, it's happening at different speeds in different places, and every country started at a different time and followed their own cultural norms, their own economic development policies. So there's a lot of staggering in here, but this decade was always the decade when we were going to pass the tipping point, because this is the decade when all the younger countries become, they age past the point of reconstitution, and all the older countries age into mass retirement. So whether you're looking at it from an American point of view, a globalization point of view, or demographic point of view, this was always going to be the last decade. COVID sped it up by two years, and the Ukraine war is a hard stop. We're never going back to 2019. And another part of that, as you've alluded to, is this kind of uh, ensuring by the U.S. of the safety of the seas, or just general, you know, you heard the moniker like the world's policeman, and to some degree, that's being you know pulled back and, and you've even said that there's almost an incentive for more disorder because the US can gain more um, from those types of interactions. So where are some of the vectors or the the, the areas that you look to as the, having the highest potential to inflame into another conflict like Ukraine and Russia? Because you predicted that, what, seven years <laughs> there's ago? There's so many. <laughs> uh, remember, we're only in the second month of the Ukraine war right here. And so to think that this is just going to end with the Russians and, and the Ukrainians is, is a bit naive. Let, let me just kind of draw a thread here. And this is a possibility. There's any number of ways that this can all go. But we know that we're going to lose four to five million barrels of Russian crude within a couple of months. And in that scenario, in the short term, it is Europe that suffers 100% of the pain. But the Europeans have something they can do about it. They can tap American crude, which the United States is going to be willing to give them, and they can go to their former colonies in Africa and renegotiate deals so that the crude goes north to them. Between the United States and Africa, that's enough for almost everything that the Europeans need, but then that crude is not going somewhere else. And the country that is at the very end of the line that absorbs most of the world's crude, the single largest importer, is China. But China doesn't have the naval power to get to, say, the Persian Gulf in order to convoy ships back. But the Japanese do. So it's very easy for me to see African economic and political issues triggering a conflict in East Asia where the Chinese are left out. Uh, and then you're going to have some degree of military confrontation if if we're lucky, it'll stay constrained. If we're not, it'll get very big in East Asia. And to think that the Middle East with the Americans absent is suddenly going to be a peaceable place with the Saudis and the Iranians already glaring at each other across the Gulf, I think is a little naive as well. So those are like the three big ones. But you can look at almost any country pairing in the Eastern Hemisphere, and there's a lot of bad water under the bridge. And, and these hateful pairs are perfectly capable of coming up with their own dust-ups in a very short period of time if there isn't a global policeman. And right now, 
well, I applaud the Biden administration for trying to support the Ukrainians, you'll notice that that's not really happening anywhere else except with Australia. Uh, the United States is not interested in the world in the way it used to be. And another thing that, you know, as you outline these, and I'm not a, 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 the same student of history, but there are so many historical, just Europe itself is its entire history is conflict between all these different countries in different forms. And one of the, the kind of weird phenomena that reminds me of another book, The Fourth Turning by William Strauss and Neil Howe, is this idea of a lack of generational memory. So if we point to the folks that can actually even conceive of what a world in which there was a world war was like, those folks are, are literally in the retirement home, if not already in the ground because of the passage of time. So what, what you know, uh, why this book is valuable, but also a, uh, an additional layer to the challenges, navigating a world that is so foreign to that which we've become accustomed to over the last couple of decades. Absolutely. The Europeans have been at peace because of the globalized system for 75 years. And because the peace was imposed from the outside and because the the country that imposed that peace, the United States, smashed the Germans as part of the process, we have taken the center weight out of the European system and replaced it with a degree of placidity and wealth that they could have never generated on their own. Uh, I am hopeful, hopeful that the Ukraine war is going to be a new page for the Europeans where they both acknowledge their history and build something better. And, uh, you know, maybe we have seen some things pushing in that direction in the last few weeks. But on the other side, the geography hasn't changed at all. The conflict with the Russians isn't something that's new. It has been part of European warfare, politics, and security going back to the beginning of the concept of Europe. And to think that the Germans can go from a pacifist socialist background to just flip and double the defense spending and be asked to defend Poland from the Russians again, and there's not going to be any side effects from that. I really hope it works, but we're going to have a situation here very soon where all the patterns are going to repeat. And just to give you one, there are a couple of pipelines that come to Germany that don't go through Ukraine and don't go through Poland. So we're going to have a situation here very soon where the Russians are going to tell the Germans, hey, yeah, we can totally keep your lights on and keep supplying you with energy, but there's going to be a cost. You have to back out of the NATO coalition when it comes to all issues Ukrainian, in which case the NATO position would cease to exist because we can't do it without German logistics. So all of these historical fault lines are still there. And I dare say the Russians are more aware of them these days than most of the Europeans. So does that mean that the, and maybe this is overly reductive, but it, you'll excuse me for thinking that some of our leaders aren't particularly great students of history. I um, think that's safe. <laughs> but is, is that what you would look for in terms of the leadership that can navigate these types of scenarios, understanding actually how these countries played amongst one another in those more historically normal times, unlike what we've experienced for the last couple of decades? Historically speaking, we have been decent at that. As a rule, the United States until the Cold War tended to elect a lot of governors or a lot of people with institutional experience. Uh, we've certainly gotten away with that with the last three choices. Senators writ large don't know a whole lot about the world and Donald Trump, uh, well, Donald Trump's Donald Trump. Um, there may, may be an exception with Biden simply because he's literally old enough to remember it all. He's one of the handful of people from the bygone era that actually was a 
a functioning adult during the Cold War and is still involved in politics. Now, we can pick apart his entire team if you want to. I'm not feeling hugely optimistic, but I'm certainly feeling more optimistic than I was for the last four guys because Biden got a lot of crap for the way we pulled out of Afghanistan. And I can understand that. But we couldn't do what we're doing in Ukraine right now if we were still in Afghanistan because we were dependent upon the Russians for logistics to support the troops there. So we actually have a free hand now. That's something we've not had for a while. We, we are at the start in the United States of a fundamentally new strategic picture. I would like to think it is going to be at the head of a renewed NATO alliance. Uh, I see things like um, the Australia-UK deal as potential grounding point for something similar in the Pacific. But you will notice that none of this is economic. It's all security. So the whole deal that we had during the Cold War of a guns and butter deal to get everybody on our side, that's not on the table. Biden's actually more populist than Donald Trump is. So we are talking about a fundamental break. And the only relationships the United States is likely to have are those where the security interests align. And as we're seeing with the Australians, that comes with an economic cost to the petitioner, not to the United States. Uh, if you want to be on our side now, you literally have to pay for it. So in the spirit of both security and this conversation around China, another kind of very influential book is The Kill Chain by Christian Bros, who now is with uh, Andrew. And there's this discussion of this history of how the U.S. secured the oceans with these big supercarrier naval platforms that were unparalleled in their you know, scale and power projection abilities as the way to ensure this world that is in the process of coming apart. From your vantage point, you know, I, I've seen you make the argument in the past that, it, you know, these supercarriers really define power projection into all these different geographies. Do you see that also being on the decline as it pertains to relevance in, in some of these potential security concerns? To a degree. Uh, they were definitely the weapon of the Cold War and World War II for the United States, and they've been central for American projecting power around the globe ever, ever since the, the 1940s. They are good for projecting power but they're not particularly good for protecting sea lanes. They're too concentrated, and we only have 13 of them now. Uh, if you want to patrol the sea lanes in a more chaotic world, you don't want 12 platforms, half of which are going to be in port at any given time. You want hundreds of platforms, like destroyers or arsenal ships. We don't have that anymore, or we don't have that yet anyway. So in a world where... Everyone in the American alliance defers to the United States on security issues and so it does not float a hostile Navy and where your primary foes are Russia and China and they're functionally landlocked, this works. But when globalization goes away and each country has to start looking out for their own interests economically and especially in the maritime realm, you will have multiple navies that are competing. And while the United States will by and large still have the most powerful Navy by at least a factor of five moving forward, it's about a factor of 10 right now, we no longer can operate with complete impunity. And in that environment, we cannot protect the sea lanes for everyone. We can only protect the sea lanes for certain countries that for whatever reason have bought into our program, whatever that happens to be administration by administration. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. Because in a world where the Russian energy supplies are disrupted or in a world where the Chinese and the Japanese 
are at each other's throats or in a world where Persian Gulf energy supplies break down, we will need regional powers will be forced to look after their own interests and they cannot do that without a functional navy. There's no reason to expect the United States to enter into a significant war with any of them. In fact, a lot of them that will be arising are likely to be friendly rather than not. But the days when the United States can just by fiat dictate a security environment on the waves, those are gone. And we're in the transition now to whatever's next. Another part of this kind of macro picture that I was curious to get your take on is the role of narratives. So in certain ways, you've talked about, you know, historical fault lines or literally like the geographic constraints that say, um, you know, Russia or China might face with the, you know, the uh, first island chain kind of boxing China in as a, as a kind of very hard physical reality. We've talked with other investors who will talk about, you know, a meme stock or a narrative that, you know, pulls markets and valuations in all sorts of different directions. To what degree do you put weight on that when it comes to some of these geopolitics? An example of that that I would give is we had a civil war in Ethiopia and there was no opinion in the US. There was no media headlines owning everyone's attention. And yet that's clearly not the case as it pertains to what's going on with Ukraine, where there's you know, every headline, every every you know newsletter that I get from the Wall Street Journal is the day's update with what's going on there. Will we see more conflicts where, as a U.S. citizen, it's just not even carrying a purview or having you know being the thing, so to speak? I think we're going to see more of that rather than less. While Ukraine suggests that maybe the United States is, to a degree, getting interested in the world again, we'll see how long it lasts. But for all the other conflicts that are going on in the world right now, I think they've just completely fallen off the radar. I mean, when was the last time you heard about Congo or Sudan or Yemen or even Iraq? You know, none of these conflicts have stopped. It's just the Americans have stopped caring. If you want to be involved, if, if the U.S. government wants America to be involved, there is a case you have to make the case to the American people about why it's worth intervention after 20 years of the forever wars. That's a hard call. And even with Ukraine, Biden has gone well out of his way to make it very clear that this is not going to be a regular conflict. There are risks. Absolutely. Anything with the Russians is going to be risky. But we're not talking about forward surging forces to face the Russians down in eastern Ukraine. And that's not going to be on the agenda at all. So either you are a country that is able to negotiate a side deal with the United States, or you are on your own. And countries are still coming to terms with what that means. Uh, the country that by far is looking at the worst position are the Chinese because the, uh, the security situation in Ukraine has laid bare their 40 years of their planning as being wrong. And they're losing the ability to talk to the United States in a constructive way due to internal problems and that the Americans are walking away too. And there's no country in the world that is more dependent upon the old system than the Chinese. Are there any alliances that will make sense to be formed? You know, you're familiar with NATO. There was the news of, it was, I believe it was the India, Japan, Australia, US quad agreement. Are there other alliances that we should be paying attention to or we should expect to come back with a return to history? There's, to start out with it anyway, there's only going to be a very few. And they're countries that are either cultural cousins or just strategic necessities to keep options open. So Australia is far and away at the top of the list. Uh, Japan paid to join under Trump. And if you, know, if you can cut a deal with both Biden and with Trump, you're good. And the Japanese have figured out how to make that work. Uh, Singapore, definitely a US ally moving forward. And of course, the United Kingdom. But anything outside of those four, you have to make the case. 
Now, we are seeing the first reinvigoration of NATO in decades. I would argue that Europe is operating on the same page for the first time since like the Treaty of Westphalia. Uh, th this sort of integration and cooperation in Europe is utterly unprecedented. Let's hope it lasts. Beyond that, uh, everything in the Western Hemisphere is kind of behind a, a bit of a cordon sanitaire. So it's not like a lot of the countries in the Western Hemisphere are allies, but the Mexicans are friends and family now, uh, and that, that works. And the Americans have their own reasons for keeping Eastern Hemispheric powers out of the Western Hemisphere, which will benefit a lot of Western Hemispheric powers, but there's nothing that they can bring to the table in terms of security cooperation that will assist that. None of them have deployment capability. The closest, of course, would be Canada. And as we've discovered less than six weeks into the Ukraine war, they have already shipped everything that they have to the Ukrainians. The cupboard is bare. And so the Canadians are actually in Washington right now talking to arms manufacturers in the US about purchases because they don't have any of their own anymore. They all broke down and closed after the Cold War. Wow. So it's it's a really short list. So in that same vein, and this is another thing, once again, completely take for granted as an American, but we basically have the, the world's two greatest moats to our east oh, yeah. and our west with the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean, just the capacity to step back and not have to engage with different conflicts. And then having, you know, one, like you said, Mexico and Canada, and that's the entirety of our borders to secure and how different that is from many of the other uh, countries of the world in terms of their own security picture. You have spoken about Mexico and the drug cartels, the drug wars there potentially representing a risk vector. And I would say similarly for the, for the US, we haven't thought a lot about any sort of potential conflict like that on our border. Can you expand a little bit on another thing you kind of see on the horizon there? Sure. So let's start with the border. It's 2000 miles long. It is completely impossible to defend with conventional means. People talk about putting the army down there, but assuming we put our entire military on the border, that's like one dude every couple of miles. We, we don't have the capacity to even monitor it, much less seal it. And all the talk of the war, the Sonoran and the Chihuahuan deserts are the greatest natural barriers in the Western Hemisphere. I'd argue they're actually even better than the Andes, because the Andes have passes. If you build a road the entire length of it, you first have to build 50 construction roads to get to the border. And then you have obviated half of the border because you've made it easier for people to cross half the desert. So I would actually argue that the wall is responsible in large part for a lot of the uh, extra legal migration we've seen in the last five years. Uh, once you kind of digest that, uh, you look at the picture a little bit differently because it's much easier to smuggle drugs than it is to smuggle a person. You know, it's, it's a lightweight, high value topic. And by putting in roads, we've made it very, very easy for things to be driven all the way up into U.S. metro regions. In that environment, you change the culture of Mexico. We used to shoot down planes or capture boats that were bringing in the stuff by water direct to the United States, you know, in the Miami Vice days. And in doing so, that forced the cargo to go into southern Mexico, where it would start winding up through the mountain valleys until it eventually got to the U.S. Well, whenever you go up a mountain valley, you get concentrated groups, like organized crime groups, that grab a piece of it, and then they expand up and down that valley to take more and more and more of it until they clash. That's the drug war in Mexico, is the clashing over those transport routes. 
you fast forward to today and there are two giant alliances of the drug cartels one is the sinaloa they're kind of like the um the conglomerate version they think of the drug smuggling business as a business and they have expanded into parallel industries into tourism and agriculture and property and i don't mean to suggest that these are nice guys they're drug runners they are not nice guys but they see violence as a means to an end rather than in and of itself well you guys remember el chapo uh he was the leader of sinaloa and when we finally got el chapo a faction of Sinaloa broke away and eventually merged as what we now know as the Jalisco New Generation Cartel. And they see violence as an end in and of itself. They're far more brutal. They're far more likely to go to war with everyone. And that's one of the reasons why Eastern Mexico is such a, a violent place now is because they've been going head to head with the cartels there and just wiping them out. And they're challenging Sinaloa as well. The problem moving forward is that Jalisco New Generation is now challenging the pre-existing cartels at every single border crossing. And as soon as they get one, they can start bringing in drugs in mass. Uh, so yes, this, this, in my opinion, is the greatest security threat that the United States faces over the long term, because it's not like we're going to end our relationship with Mexico. It's our largest energy relationship. It's our largest agricultural relationship. It's our largest manufacturing relationship. And if you factor out the illegal migration, it is still the largest migration relationship. So Mexico and the United States, for better or for worse, are going to be working together from now on. And we have yet to come up with a good strategy to fight this war. And what? so what are the historical parallels there? Because you, know, you can, it, there might be different tools, there might be different technologies for, for war fighting, but they're still similar. You know, the art of war was written how many thousand years ago? The art of a drug war, the art of a cartel war is kind of a different game. I would love to be able to put, give you some signposts of how we could make this better. Uh, but as long as Americans like their cocaine and as long as they're willing to pay for it, it's going to continue to come and the drug cartels are going to fight over it. One of the problems we've got now, however, that's made it worse is because the cartels have had so much power for so long, they're laundering their money through other industries and those other industries have now become profit centers for them. So it's no longer just about the drugs. And that gives them a degree of staying power versus any potential strategy. And if, if there was an easy solution to this, Biden would have fixed it, Trump would have fixed it, Obama would have fixed it, W would have fixed it, Bill Clinton would have fixed it, and all the way back to the 1960s. Uh, this, is, this is a reasonable national concern uh, that doesn't have an easy answer. Yeah. The Going Deep podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand, and grow faster. Say hello at pipercreative.co. I want to switch uh, gears here. I know that, uh, once again, if you're a headline reader, uh, China is very scary. They, there's you know, the ability for them to surpass us economically and, and all these other things that you know people will ring the alarm bells about. You are one of the first voices that, for me, shifted my perception of uh, not only the the kind of structural risks that they entailed, uh, but perhaps the likelihood that there wasn't this kind of inevitability of uh, Chinese dominance across the entire globe. I think we're starting to see some of the fissures in the forms of some of the lockdowns and food shortages being experienced in Shanghai and other uh, provinces around China. But can you talk a little bit about these downstream ramifications for both energy and food as it pertains to China? 
Sure. Well, let's start with the baseline. The only reason we're even talking about China as a significant power is because of globalization. Uh, it was the end of World War II settlement that removed the Europeans from the capacity of intervening in China. It was the end of World War II and the settlement with the Japanese that prevented the colonization of China. Japan was winning in China right up until the bombs fell on Nagasaki and uh, Hiroshima. And then all of a sudden, the, the Chinese environment changed overnight. All the foreigners left and the Chinese could fight their own internal civil war, which eventually the communists won. And then we got to a point 20 years later where the Soviets and the Chinese fought a near nuclear conflict over border disputes, entered Nixon and Kissinger, and the rest is history because we basically convinced the Chinese to switch sides. They joined the globalized system and in turn for turning their backs on the Soviets. And that is what set up the strategic environment for China's growth ever since. However, that is not sustainable without intervention, excuse me, intervention from the United States or globalization in general. The line of islands off the Chinese coast, Japan, Taiwan, Philippines, if there's one thing they all agree on is that they're not China. And the Chinese have never been able to project power beyond that except during the global order because the Americans have forced everyone to be on the same side. That's breaking down now. And the Chinese don't have the capacity in any form to project power beyond, much beyond their own coast, sorry, much beyond their own coastline. They do have a lot of ships. 90% of them can't sail more than a thousand miles from shore. And that assumes they're going at a slow speed to save fuel in a straight line and no one's shooting at them. Really, China can barely make it past Taiwan. And China is the most internationalized economy in terms of its resource and its market dependence. So if the global system breaks down, that is it. The Chinese system implodes. And if China finds itself in a real war with anyone, someone, the Japanese, the Taiwanese, the Vietnamese, the Indians, the Americans, someone is going to put a couple of destroyers in the Persian Gulf or in the Indian Ocean and cut the energy line. Because the United States hasn't been the world's largest energy supporter for some time, over a decade. It's China. China imports 85% of their energy, and 85% of that comes from the Persian Gulf, and the Chinese can't reach the Persian Gulf. So any breakdown in the regional or the global order, and it's lights out. And never forget that agriculture is an industrialized sector, and the Chinese import almost all of their inputs for that, too. So you're talking about the lights going out the truck stopping and famine within a year. And we won't. And, and so how will you try to get legibility into that situation? Because we've seen them expel external journalists. They already make the, you know, even reporting of certain internal data illegal or obfuscated or, or falsified. So, you know, really we're talking about like the Peter Zion production function here as a researcher, as a, as a person trying to craft strategy from reality. Where do you look for actual signal through the noise? Actually, it's gotten really easy. It used to be a lot more opaque, but ever since Xi um, denigrated his own system into cult of personality, they, they've ceased making functional decisions at the top. Uh, a great example is what's going on with the Ukraine war. So there is this belief in China that uh, the Russians will take Ukraine first. It'll kind of prove uh, the, the theory that we have that we can take Taiwan easily. Clearly, that's not the case because while 
the Russians are clearly not performing to snuff. The Ukrainian army is not a regular army. They're doing great, don't get me wrong. But the power mismatch in that is not nearly as big as the power mismatch between China and Taiwan, because the Taiwanese have been preparing for this war now for 70 years. And they have a lot of modern equipment and oh yeah they're still an island so scratch one they know the strategic relationship will not go the way they were hoping they're terrified of the boycotts and the sanctions because the idea that shareholders would back away is something that they can't deal with economically they need those connections in order to employ their own population and the sanctions you know say what you will about the russian economy it's a major exporter of both foodstuffs and energy and the chinese are major importers of both so if we put a russia style sanction on the chinese system that's it it's over it collapses in less than a year and then if you just need one more reason you know <laughs> it's like i think this is plenty uh demographics the one child policy started 40 years ago they're literally running out of workers and consumers. It's the fastest aging society in human history. And some of the data they've been leaking out of the 2020 decade census suggests that this is them suggesting that they've actually overcounted their population by about 100 million people. That's all people who were born since the one child policy. And it's probably the vast majority of them being women. So there is no hope for a demographic reconstitution of this country. We've always known for demographics, it was gonna collapse this century because they're aging so fast, there'll be less than half as many people in 2100 as there are now, assuming nothing goes wrong with anything else. And now with this new data from the census, it, we may have to speed that date up by 50 years. So in my opinion, this decade was always going to be the decade where the Chinese system completely collapsed. We're losing our boogeyman. I think we'll get by. I want to just push on that a little bit more. I, I buy most of the arguments, but just to kind of play devil's advocate here. Please. Um, on the fall of demographics, there's the argument of robotics. You won't need as many people from a manufacturing standpoint because we can put robotics in there. You won't need as many drivers because there'll be autonomous vehicles. And then from an uh, energy independent standpoint, they can roll out nuclear, they can rely on coal and amongst other uh, energy sources and, and basically replace their need with an electric grid powered by nuclear in order to uh, accomplish that. Those are those are kind of two arguments against oh, yeah, two of the yeah, points. Those, you those made. are fair points. They're fair points. I mean, you, you change the rules of the game and I'm going to change my mind. That's just how that works. Yeah. Uh, nuclear and coal are feasible options for them for electricity. That is absolutely true. Uh, their nuclear power plants are by far not the most efficient in the world, but they get the job done and they have have plenty of soft coal. My concern because of the demographic stance is far more basic though. If you don't have enough people to consume, you don't have enough to fuel your economic system. And so the Chinese have always been dependent far more than most on imports for the raw commodities and then exports for the finished goods. You can't do that without a globalized system. So you're talking about the best case scenario here being a North Korea-like environment where the food goes away, but the power stays on. It could be worse. Chinese history is replete with examples of it being worse, but what you just identified is probably the best case scenario for them. Got it. And then one last part here, and then we can kind of, I want to wrap with just you as the geopolitical strategist, but there's another argument 
Russia has seen this literally, and this word's used too often, but literally unparalleled financial sanctions levied against them. And they had this Fortress Russia idea. Um, You've talked about the finance minister there being someone you've really admired for her uh, kind of brilliance to do as much as she possibly can. Central bank chief. Uh, Central bank chief. I'm sorry. Sorry. The idea that once this bullet has been fired, so to speak, by the Western world, that now China sits in a position where they can say, oh, we now see what's possible, see what's capable, and we can start to make our efforts to prepare for such a scenario because the bullets actually come out of the chamber for the first time. What do you think about that argument? Well, let's start with currency, then let's, then let's go to FDI. So with currency, everyone who, for whatever reason, doesn't care for the United States saw this as proof in the pudding that they need to shift to a different system. And so everyone started having conversations about what they would shift to. The Russians say, well, obviously it should be rubles. And the Chinese, no, 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 it should be yuan, but it's not convertible. So you, we are going to have to fly those to you a pallet at a time, and we don't want any of them back ever. And the Indians were like, well, hey, rupees, let's use rupees. And so, you know, it's only been six months and all of those plans have imploded and the U.S.'s dollar role in the global system has gone up. Even because the euro now has basically hitched itself to the dollar as a secondary support system rather than its own independent pole. And same with the Japanese. Uh, so, you know, there, there, there's just there's no alternative here. There's no other option. On the investment side, uh, the Chinese have had a reputation for using a lot of capital flight and a lot of export earnings to purchase what they consider to be strategic assets around the world. And that has generated a lot of heartburn in a lot of places. Well, they now know that that's pointless because the Germans who are, you know, let's say not, how should I put this? made some poor strategic decisions over the course of the last 30 years as regards to the Russians. They're already nationalizing Russian assets in Germany. You know, the Germans, the ones who are the pacifists and the socialists. Uh, so the Chinese are now realizing that everything they bought overseas is worthless. And they're trying to sell a lot of it. So at least they'll get some cash out of it. But they only want dollars. Got it. Powerful answer. So uh, I want to wrap up here because not only have I seen your ascent here for the last couple of years as someone who can deliver insights and just build a really interesting business. I had understood that a career like yours was possible uh, when I was coming out of school. I think that's actually would have become a North Star for me uh, of, of sorts. So can you just maybe start off by just giving us a picture of Zion on geopolitics, the business model, and, and what actually just even goes into being a geopolitical strategist or a geopolitical consultancy? Well, step one, I'm a generalist. So I do finance, I do demography, I do manufacture, and I do ag, I do a lot of things. My bases are obviously demographics and geography, but that doesn't do anything if you can't apply it to the people who are in front of you. So we started out doing consulting and eventually turned into public speaking. I have a lot of fun on stage. I usually have a bourbon and a coffee and it's a good time for everybody. Uh, some of the joy's gone out of it in the last month because you know we've got to start talking about the war. But if you can't make the information accessible and applicable, I would just be another consultant uh, with a head in a book. I try to be more than that. And that means I have to learn the world from every client's point of view for each individual presentation or consulting event. Uh, That is alternatively really exciting. Based on the client, what they care about, it can be a little depressing. I don't always have good news. And so it's, it's in the delivery in many cases so that you don't encourage people to find the nearest balcony to jump off of. Second, uh, the books are my way of having a conversation with myself, so to speak. 
every presentation I give is different. It's tailored for the audience. And since the book is a general audience, it's a combination of education and forecast and making people understand how we got to where we are. And the new book, particularly, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, uh, does that from an economic point of view as well as a strategic one. So the first three books that I did are kind of in the uh, rise and fall of nations genre. And this new one is, you know, here's what the world we're going to be living in for the next 30 years is going to look like. And hang on. It's really good. I am going to strongly, strongly recommend it to people. The I, I think the best analogy that I could come up with, I've referenced a couple books already, but Yuval uh, Harari's Sapiens was like the book that everyone cited that I was like, oh, this is how the world works. This was, I've read both. This is better than that book. No, no, not casting any shade against Yuval, but it should be just, yeah. just as big a hit and, and really uh, edifying on what's actually going on in the present right now and create this really clear picture. How do you construct your team to get you the information that you need, whether it be, you know, researchers, like, like even just, Hey, I want to make sense of X. Are you getting really, you know, granular and that like I need to know what the you know oil production is from this country over the last 30 years or how are you actually managing information within a company like yours? Well that that's specifically is something that we get on every country and <laughs> usually more than 30 years. Uh, every, remember every client's different. They're coming at the world from a different point of view. And we've got have clients in manufacturing and agriculture and finance and all the rest. So yes, every time we build a picture of how the world works from their point of view, we have to understand all aspects of their operations and then all, all aspects of the context in which they operate. Uh, specifically for the team though, I, I cheated a little bit. I rated my old employer more than once uh, in order to pick employees that I had been working with for a long time. So some of my staff have been with me for a decade now. Beyond that, we're always uh, training up new folks. Uh, we just hired a new one a few months ago who's taking it to like a fish to water. Uh, but I'd say that the single most important thing is I encourage my team to tell me when I'm wrong because it happens. And if they don't, then I make a fool out of myself in front of a crowd and that's really bad. So you have to put your ego in a safe deposit box a lot of time and not take it personally. And I have to imagine it's also having a really good understanding of where the good data is like actually building up a, a premise from the first principle. So something, something I, I learned from you was uh, you talked, no, it wasn't the Sinaloa. What was the other cartel's name here? Jalisco. Uh, the Jalisco, like part of the avocado uh, issues that we were facing, like my wife's guac going up in price was associated with that. Like, how do you even like drill down to actually getting that information? You're not like I'm guessing interviewing someone in the Jalisco cartel. As a rule, no, I am not <laughs> interviewing, or interviewing international criminals. Uh, for that specific one, years ago, I did an or I, uh, years ago I did a presentation for a group that literally calls themselves the Pickle Packers, and in the winter, most of the hot house cucumbers that go into the American pickle industry go for Mexico. Mexico is a mountainous country, so they've got their greenhouses going in stair steps up the mountains, which means that they actually have the best footprint in Mexico for understanding the cartels. And when the cartels started to get into agriculture, the pickle packers knew about it. So I chat up 
all of my clients. And I've been doing this now for 10 years. And I think I added up recently, it's been about 650 clients and they all have their own stories and it all just kind of gets thrown in together. And every once in a while, you find this bizarre connection that you would have never guessed. And that's one of them. And I have to imagine that it's also, you know, the, the standard truism of this knowledge compounding. I, I heard a story once there was a or maybe it was like a, a fable or something, but it was, you know, the Senator is reading the news and he basically scans through the entire article and he's done with it in 15 seconds. Cause he was really only looking for one factoid relative to the story because he'd been tracking these arcs over decades of his career. And the new intern couldn't possibly comprehend how he could pick that up so quickly from just reading an article. And I have to imagine that's also part of your purview is you've been thinking about this stuff so intensively for so long that you're really just adding one small additional fact to a pre-existing corpus of knowledge. Exactly. It's all about the context. And when it comes to making people understand what's going on in the world about them, if you can explain it to them in their context, it'll stick with them. And I think that's, that's what we're all about here. And so far, so good. Right on. Well, uh, Peter, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you sharing your time with us and your insights with us. Before we leave and, and ask our standard last two questions, is there anything else uh, outside of, of telling people to buy the book that you think they need to understand or just part of the geopolitical picture that they should be uh, keeping themselves attuned to? I just understand that the world that we've been living in for the last 70 years, and especially the last 30, was this just magical confluence of unrelated events. Uh, the age structure that was relatively young or relatively balanced, and a demographic, I'm sorry, and a geopolitical picture that was safer than it had ever been. And both of those are coming to the end. We're, we're entering into a fundamentally new era where countries are going to have to sink or swing more, sink or swim more or less on their own. If you're in the Western Hemisphere, that's going to be a lot easier than the Eastern Hemisphere. And if you're in North America, it's going to be easier than South America. So the U.S. is going to come through this looking pretty good, different. And I don't mean to suggest the road forward is a straight or a non-bumpy one, but we'll be fine. Uh, if you're looking for more to follow, especially as regards to the Ukraine war, because that's all anyone can talk about these days, the website is www.zeihan.com, and it, you can sign up for a newsletter right on the front page. The newsletter is free. It will always be free. Right on. And uh, I would encourage people to obviously check out the new book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, but the uh, older books as well. Disunited Nations was one of the... Uh, not easiest in terms of uh, being simple, but just a page turner that I flew through. I, I definitely recommend this United Nations to folks. Uh, and we'll link that all in the show notes for this episode. But uh, Peter, before I let you go, I'd like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Sure. Uh, we Because the newsletter is free, we're actively soliciting donations for a group called AFIA, the AFIA Foundation, A-F-Y-A Foundation.org. They are providing medical assistance to the refugees of the Ukraine war. So far, we've got about six and a half million Ukrainians have fled their, their homes, and there's another almost seven million internally displaced within Ukraine that are probably going to have to evacuate as well within the next couple of months. So anything you can give would be hugely appreciated. Uh, and here we are providing all of the royalties from all of the sales of all of the formats of all three of the books, Accidental, Absent, and Disunited Nations, uh, to AFIA uh, for at least uh, until June 1. And at that point, we'll see where the war is. Beautiful. Well, hopefully there is a, a quick end to that and a lot of people are able to do donate and support. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Good to be here. We just went deep with Peter Zion. Moving out there is a fantastic day. 
Hey, thank you for listening to the end of my interview with Peter. If you enjoyed it and found this educational, then I would point you to two other past conversations that we've had about geopolitics, one with Doomberg about energy and inflation, and one with Marco Popich, where he makes some predictions about China eventually invading Taiwan and the nation of Turkey. Linked in the show notes, go check them out. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.